In July 1999, Paul Howe was murdered in front of his sister and two young daughters during a carjacking. When police tracked the vehicle, it led them to a gang affiliate who pointed a finger at the shooter. After a trial tainted with racial bias, under-resourced defense attorneys, and a prosecutor hell-bent on securing an execution, the defendant was sentenced to death. But for decades, he proclaimed his innocence and begged for his life. Did the jury convict the right man? This week's episode is The Trial of Julius Jones. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinister. This is a case, people always ask us, what are the ones that like you think about a lot or that keep you up? This is definitely shot to the top of that for me. This has been a uh, very difficult one to stomach. Oh, definitely. And this was one that our uh, Patreon subscribers mm-hmm. actually voted on for us to cover. And it was timing, you know, as far as the it's being in the news mm-hmm. and there being an outcry from both uh, Paul Howe's family, from Julius Jones's family, and just trying to balance, I guess, justice in a state that sadly has a extremely horrific track record of executing innocent people, not just convicting yeah. innocent people. Oklahoma is not only executing innocent people, but also doing it very badly, botching it, tor- essentially torturing people. Mm. There's a huge long article about their issues with the the drugs that they use, and uh, it was on pause for about five years. They recently just started back mm-hmm. up again, and uh, you know a long uh, history in Oklahoma County or of you know prosecutorial misconduct under this one particularly hell bent uh, prosecutor. So you, this is a confluence as I was researching it and you know the time I spent you know doing pro bono work for the innocence project when I worked at the firm and then just in my spare time researching and staying abreast of all the the things happening in racial justice criminal justice reform this is a case that is a confluence of all of the things wrong with the system they've all it's like a perfect storm that all happened and the result is that a person is on death row that said you know I did not do this here's all the evidence and it's like a checkbox of all mm-hmm. the things that could go wrong in a trial did. And all the evidence, as we'll, we will see, um, in my opinion, very clearly points to the fact that they got the wrong person. Yeah, and, it was a, it was a race even, to the cops. And pretty much know that they got the wrong person, but yeah. they just wanted to convict someone uh, in addition to a history of executions. I don't think anyone is surprised that Oklahoma has a a history of racism as well, which heavily played into this case and and still does. But it's really, once you hear the facts, it's shocking that this man is in jail. Yeah. And and, uh, at this point... uh quickly has uh started running out of options so that's what that's hard when you see okay this is a system this is how it's supposed to work and then it's not and then what can we do next and what changes do we need to make which i think we always like to discuss so we'll get into Mm -hmm. that and what do we think but i think as you listen to the facts you're you're just like one after the other of like 
that could be anybody's kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's truly a nightmare when you, you think the system will work. You, no one ever thinks, well, not no one. I'm sure there are people that do think, but rarely do you think, man, I'll just be sitting in my home, just minding my own business. And uh, next day, I'm going to be arrested for something that I 100% know I didn't do and multiple people know I didn't do, but somehow it happens. And then I started to think when I was watching this, these documentaries, like, how many other people is this also their story? Too many. I mean, if you yeah. watch The Innocence Files on Netflix, you'll see a ton of people and it's as the uh, forensic evidence, the science come, that comes along with eyewitness testimony, as that ev evolves and advances, you have to look backwards and go, oh, shit, we put a ton of people away on microscopic hair analysis. That was like a big deal in the 80s and early 90s that now we're seeing uh, Alice Siebold. I sent you that article about uh, the author of The Lovely Bones mm -hmm. suffered a rape in 1981 yes. and falsely accused, wrongfully identified the person that did it. And part of the thing they relied on was this microscopic hair analysis that we see now is bunk science, essentially, that was like not, they really, really promised it was accurate. And it was really just people eyeballing under a microscope. And God forbid how many people have now gone away mm -hmm. on this evidence that this, you know, evidentiary standard that was pr apparently pretty low. Mm -hmm. So it's tough, man. It's looking into stuff. It's part of criminal justice reform is looking into what happened, what went wrong, and how not only fixing it backward looking, but forward looking as well. And there was a bipartisan death penalty review commission uh, assembled in Oklahoma that just straight up said it is undeniable that innocent people have been sentenced to death in Oklahoma. Oh, I mean, just flat yeah. out said it. And I mean, I don't think that's limited to Oklahoma. And I think no, that's a good argument for not having capital punishment is at the time technology and science just might not be there and mm -hmm. what if you're getting it wrong and what if you know five ten twenty years down the line technology catches up with us and somebody can be exonerated based on that if they aren't around for that to happen then there's no way you know i mean so if they're still in jail at least 20 years of their life or however long is, has been taken from them but at least they're still alive yeah, it's the ultimate. You got to be really, really sure. And we say, in theory, it's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. But the, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt is not the same as 100% no doubt whatsoever. Yeah. That's two different standards, you know. And I think if you're going to kill somebody, you got to be 100% no doubt. And we don't, that's not the standard of our justice system. So, yeah. I would say for me, even 100%, I don't think someone deserves to die. But, it's the Menendez argument. There's always, yeah. uh, I, I would think, there's some scrap of a human left in there, and let's not lose uh, lose sight of that, mm -hmm. that maybe they can do some good and well, offset the wrongs. we had a lot of requests for this one even before our patrons voted on it, and um, we gave them three really good true crime topics, and this one, this one won, um, and it's... I think something that everyone has is really passionate about right now, especially because a lot of stuff just came out just even in the past few weeks with this case mm -hmm. that have been a big deal. So I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Julius Darius Jones was born July 25th, 1980 in Oklahoma to Anthony and Madeline Davis Jones. He was the middle child between his older brother Antonio and his younger sister Antoinette. Julius's mother told the filmmakers of The Last Defense that Julius was a lot like her growing up. 
He was a kind and caring child, liked people, and enjoyed learning and doing new things. His parents were sticklers for good grades, unsurprising as Madeline was the school teacher. However, in an interview in The Last Defense, Julius said his dad, a construction worker, expected he and his siblings to do just as well in school as his mom. Julius went on to say, My father was my hero. The first 15 minutes of this documentary, like, you know off the bat, you're like, oh, God, this is going to... This is going to be rough. I mean, within 10 minutes, I was crying. Yeah, it's a punch to the gut, for real. And especially, you know, when you... It shows beyond just one person gets locked up, it's an entire family yeah. now is dealing in the aftermath. Yeah, and his poor parents and his siblings and his best friend that's interviewed. I mean, everyone, but especially his, his family, have just been broken from this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At John Marshall High School in Oklahoma City, Julius continued to excel. His former high school teacher, John Goodman, told interviewers, He was exactly the type of student you want. He was always thoughtful. He always saw the big picture, got along with all sorts of people, was real curious about all sorts of things. In addition to being a star in the classroom, Julius was a star in the basketball court, where he was coached by Tommy Griffin, father of NBA stars Blake and Taylor Griffin. However, it was his grades that earned him an academic scholarship to the University of Oklahoma, having graduated from John Marshall in the top 10% of his class. With her second child headed off to college, Madeline Jones felt the entire family was in a good place. This is when you kind of see a path diverge. Totally top 10%, like nothing to worry about, goes off to college, things start to change. Like so many of us, we go off to college and it's just... Too much freedom for for us to handle. Madeline told the filmmakers of The Last Defense that it was during his first semester away at college that she began to notice a change in her son. Proving that a mother's intuition is rarely wrong, Julius had, in fact, begun getting into trouble. Wanting extra money to buy new clothes, Julius had started stealing pagers to sell for cash. Additionally, he had been convicted on charges of making a false statement in pursuit of a fake ID. In The Last Defense, Julius owns up to the fact that he wasn't a saint and didn't always make the best decisions, but is quick to remind viewers. Just because I broke the law does not make me a murderer. Well, and his best friend even says from back home, Jimmy said, you know, I started seeing people he's hanging out with. And it's like your friend from high school goes off to college and you ask him, hey, man, what's going on? Why are you hanging out with people like that? We don't, you know, we play basketball together. We study, we get good grades. Like, why are you all of a sudden making these bad choices and starting to kind of try to show off and, you know, want those clothes, steal things, kind of do whatever it mm-hmm. takes to to get the, you know, basically shirk your academic responsibilities and try to get the, you know, flashy cars or mm-hmm. whatever. Running around with the wrong crowd. On July 28th, 1999, three days after his 19th birthday, Julius enjoyed a spaghetti dinner at his parents' house. He had taken some time off from school and was living back home with his family. He was excited to return to college soon, where he had plans to play for the Sooners basketball team. As Julius ate his pasta and waited for his friend, Chris Jordan, to pick him up, he played a game of Monopoly with his sister, while his mom got ready to take Antonio to work. It was 9.30 p.m., a time Antonio remembers well, because he had to be at work by 10 p.m. According to Julius, It was just an ordinary night. I really didn't have any idea how my life could change. At that same time, in Edmond, Oklahoma, another family's life was also about to change. At 9.30 p.m., a man made a distressed call to 911. My son's been shot out in the front yard. He's got no pulse. 
When asked by the dispatcher where he was shot, the man replied, I don't know. I was in bed. The kids came running in. He's, he's laying out in the driveway. Indeed, 45-year-old insurance executive Paul Howe had been shot in the head. His sister and his two young daughters had witnessed the devastating murder. This is something uh, no kid should have to be witness to. His daughters were seven and nine. His sister, an adult, was in the passenger seat. And it's one of these things where, much like Julius, like no one ever goes out thinking, this is going to be my last night on earth. You know, Mm -hmm. you just are out hanging out with your family and then, bam, it's all over. Well, and it's something that, and one of his daughters, Rachel, said that she thinks about it all the time. She said that she very clearly saw his head tilt back and fall down. Mm-hmm. She saw him hit the pavement. So it wasn't even like, oh, there was a struggle and we ran off. I mean, this the shooting occurred in the front seat, in the driver's seat. She was in the back seat with her sister. I mean, they could, you know, once you open the door, you know, the interior light of the car is going to come on. You're going to at least see something happen. And she said that the thing that she sees, you know, that, Essentially, she said, haunts her every night when she tries to go to bed is seeing him fall to the pavement. Mm-hmm. And that something like that, you're never, ever going to not see that, you know, and yeah. it's just worse and worse. And especially when you don't get justice, it's never going to go away. It's not something you can easily heal from. Yeah, it changes the trajectory of your entire life for sure. Earlier in the night, Paul, his sister and the kids had been out shopping for school supplies. Before heading home, they stopped for ice cream. Paul pulled into the driveway of his parents' house in his tan GMC Suburban. When he opened the door to get out, shots rang out. As Paul lay in the driveway, his sister and children safely made it into the house. His murderer, who had been wearing a stocking cap and red bandana to conceal his identity, jumped in the Suburban and sped off. Within minutes, police were on the scene, and an APB was put out on the vehicle and the suspect, a black male wearing a white T-shirt and red bandana. And she also said he shouted something. The suspect shouted something. The sister in her testimony later said he shouted something at her whenever it was all ongoing. He said that when or she said when Paul opened the car to get out, he was shot in the head. And then the shooter yelled, where are the keys? Where are the keys? She panicked, grabbed the girls from the back seat, started running in, you know, into the garage, into the house. And he yells, stop. And tries to shoot up them and misses. Mm-hmm. And then they make it inside and, and tell the dad what happened. And he calls 911. But I, it's it's pretty incredible that they got out unscathed. Mm-hmm. In that chaos, yeah. On July 29, 1999, Chris Westside Jordan, a former high school basketball teammate of Julius's and an affiliate of the Roland 60 Crips, had to spend the night at Julius's house. He claimed he was locked out of his grandma's home and needed a place to crash. Julius told filmmakers that Jordan had never spent the night before, but that he didn't think anything strange about the request. Westside slept in Julius's bedroom while Julius slept on the sofa downstairs. So here's where things, it's those little things that we think about where you're like, if I just hadn't said, yeah, you can crash. If I just hadn't said... Yeah, you can take my bed. Mm-hmm. Like all these little sliding door moments where your entire life changed and you don't mm-hmm. you had no idea that what the path you were headed down. 
And even like you think his parents say, well, you know, they played basketball together. Sure, mm-hmm. you can sleep over. Of, man, why didn't we just say no? Why We should have just, you know, told him he couldn't stay. And you don't know that by saying yes and you think you're being kind and opening your house to somebody, you've just opened yourself up to mm-hmm. something much worse. Mm-hmm. The following day, July 30th, police spotted the stolen Suburban at a grocery store on the south side. They questioned local chop shop owner and confidential informant Kermit Lottie whose shop was a few blocks from where the stolen vehicle was found. He pointed police to Liddell Dayday King, who had been by the chop shop the previous day, attempting to sell the SUV. Kermit had seen the news, however, and knew the cops were looking for it in connection to a homicide. He refused to buy the vehicle from Dayday. After that, Dayday had left his shop. And they said, yeah, Kermit was a kind of go-to. They knew if they needed to talk to somebody about a car getting flipped, that he would be the guy to know to go to, and he... Cooperated with police frequently. Yeah, um, and then he got to run his chop shop, and they looked the other way because he's giving yeah. them information. Interesting we'll how see these that, things work out. We'll see that a lot in this in this case, that there's a lot of police informants, and that can really get sticky when you have police informants that also have rap sheets uh, giving you information. Well, and people also with a lot to lose, willing to make a trade and mm-hmm. willing to maybe say anything that they, that needs to get said in order to get that deal. For sure. Yeah, it's it's a weird dichotomy. And these GMC Suburbans back then were very popular cars. They were easy to steal. They were easy to, like, break down, sell for parts. So it's one of those things also for Paul Howe where you're like, man— if we had just not been driving that car, and of course nobody can blame him. He's completely no. faultless in this. But it's just those little things where all these little things could have, if you changed, might never have happened. Yeah, and you just ask yourself that forever. And we mm-hmm. can't live our – I think we've talked no, about this in can't. other episodes too. Of like you can't say like, okay, well, I'm not going to go to the store because this could happen. You know, whatever. No. You just you should be able to live your life freely. Absolutely. You know, you should be able to, to go out with your kids and everything and not – be targeted because you you know you should be able to drive whatever kind of car you want but sure. you see that that you know uh in this case you know the the cops kind of knew where to look because it was something that was frequently you know targeted mm-hmm. essentially well and then when they find it at the grocery store and then they know kermit's shop is down down the street it all kind of starts to make Clicked. sense yeah when police questioned king who also happened to be a police informant He described how Julius and Jordan arrived at his apartment on the day of the murder, with Julius driving the SUV. King told police that Julius was wearing a white shirt, red bandana, and a black stocking cap, clothing items that matched the witness's description of the shooter. Police also questioned Jordan that day, who told them he had driven the car as an accomplice, but that Julius had been the one to murder Paul Howe. I think this is a case of who gets to the cops the fastest and controls the narrative. And... As in The Last Defense, which is a really good documentary, the detective straight up says uh, informants know, like Day Day, that whoever gets to the cops first and talks first gets the better deal. I mean, they're not idiots. They know how the system works. They're involved in the system a lot. So, yeah, he knew who if I if I lay some information down now, I can try and kind of steer this in the direction I want to go. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he was 
he was looking at a, a third strike felony, uh, you know, mm-hmm. at the time. So you kind of know, like, all right, what am I going to do for you? What are you going to do for me? That again, you know that you have leverage uh, if you have information, or at least say you have information uh, on on something that they're really. Especially this was in the news; it was a big deal. Edmond was kind of this quaint little suburb, and they didn't want, you know, it was like this. Crazy gang violence has infiltrated Edmund. Mm-hmm. What what are we going to do about it? Kind of thing. So everybody was really anxious to to make an arrest. Yes, Paul Howell was a wealthy white man, mm-hmm. and as the documentary says, Edmund was, and I don't know about still, but it, at least then was, um, I want to say ninety percent white. It was eighty five percent, eighty five percent white. Yeah, and also just, um, uh. A lot of people had moved to Edmond specifically because integration had begun to happen or, or when integration started to happen in other areas of Oklahoma. So yeah. it wasn't a good um, climate for people of color. And when the cops see we have a wealthy white guy that was carjacked in his driveway in this nice, well-to-do neighborhood, we need to make an arrest quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps it didn't matter who it was, they just needed to make an arrest. Well, in, in that documentary, the former state senator was Connie Johnson. She said that Edmond is a place, and she said, quote, where black folks have been maligned and unwelcome. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you see a, a white victim and a black perpetrator, that same Death Penalty Review Commission, it's a bipartisan commission, again, that the was looking at the death penalty in Oklahoma, a black male accused of killing a white male victim in Oklahoma is three times more likely to receive a death sentence than if the defendant and the victim were both non-white males. Wow. So you do see, you know, it's one of those where, I mean, you got to read like uh, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or watch 13th or whatever, where I think you cannot say, Oh, well, we all just have to not see race and be totally colorblind. You can, I mean, that's first of all, it's ignorant, but also the the data, the facts, the research on this doesn't back that up. There is disparity in the criminal justice system that is racial disparity, particularly against black males. Absolutely. Police called the Jones residence that day and asked if Julius was there. Julius had answered the phone. When Jordan had finally picked Julius up the night of the murder— Jordan told Julius he was late to pick him up because of some trouble that had happened. With the police now on the phone, Julius assumed that's what they wanted to talk about. Not wanting to get mixed up in it, Julius told the officer on the other end that he wasn't home before hanging up and leaving for Jordan's older brother's apartment. When police called again later, Julius's sister, Antoinette, answered. This time, the cops weren't just on the phone. They were also surrounding the Joneses' house, with guns drawn, but no warrant, Confused and terrified, the family walked out with their hands up. In a later interview, Antoinette recalled, I was so scared, I couldn't have cried even if I wanted to. Uh, Yeah, because the SWAT team has their guns trained on your face. And there is footage, news footage of this in the documentary. The amount of police that show up for Mm -hmm. this and SWAT is overkill, to say the least. Again, like you said, it is a it was in the news and it was we got to make a statement. We're going to make a stand. Here we are. We found we found our guy. You would have thought. Yeah. I mean, that it would. I mean, it was dozens of cops with just Mm -hmm. shotguns, handguns, just Mm -hmm. walking up and down the streets, looking in bushes. And it seemed like even if this person was responsible 
I don't, I mean, much less has been done for far uh, bigger criminals. It seemed like oh, it yeah. was, it was a, it was definitely a show. Oh, and, and again, you hear, you know, uh, the gentleman who shot up the AMC church, you know, that was given Burger King before they, you know, before mm-hmm. they took him in mm-hmm. that, you know, they roll him in, get him a, get him a Whopper versus this school teacher, construction worker, their children, traumatized, guns pointed at them, very different, disparate treatment. I oh, mean, you, sure. you again, you say, you can't say, oh, well, I didn't have to do it. It does, you know? Um, it's Yes, like you said, you're completely ignorant if you say race didn't play a part in this. And Antoinette says that they have no idea what's going on. Everyone, and Julius no. isn't there. They're all confused. And their parents told her and her brother, put your hands up. Don't say anything. Don't don't give any attitude. Don't run. Don't do anything. You just walk out and you do what they say because. And his mom says, "I know what happens. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't want any of us to lose our lives that day." And mm-hmm. that's the 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 truth of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. With Jordan and the squad car outside the Jones residence, insisting Julius did it and that evidence would be found inside Julius's bedroom. The SWAT team burst in the home. They ransacked the place, ripping up mattresses, stomping on clothes, and manhandling dozens of items in Julius's room. They opened a hatch above Julius's bedroom closet, where they found a 25 caliber handgun wrapped in a red bandana. When the gun was later tested, it was confirmed to be the murder weapon. And they also found a magazine for the same caliber handgun in the door chime, outside so it had been outside the house mm-hmm. that had been jammed in there um so interesting that you know you have west side jordan in the squad car chris jordan in the squad car saying uh you should look in the bedroom yeah i bet it's in the bedroom who had stayed in his bedroom the mm-hmm. night before and to say their house was was ransacked is being kind it looked like a legitimate bomb had been dropped in there i mean they busted out totally unnecessarily to windows, glass yeah. everywhere. I mean, it looked like an episode of Hoarders because they yeah. had just taken everything out of the closets, cabinets, whatever, just thrown it everywhere. They left their dirty gloves behind. The, mm-hmm. um, the father said there were, they had squirted ketchup and mustard all over the floor. They took all of the suits out of his closet and put them on the ground and stomped on them. These are police officers that yep. are doing and later, this. Later, you know, the the current police chief said, well, you know, the glass was probably broken by the flashbangs. And, okay, well, I don't think that the flashbangs exploded the ketchup and the mustard on the ground. You're just being dicks at that. You know, you're just trying to create destruction. And, again, on a person who has not been convicted of anything. Right. Yeah. No, his, his dad said it was clearly a message that was being mm-hmm. sent to us. He goes... Why would why would they take out my my clothes and stomp on them? Like why would somebody do that? And just the heartbreak in their face and the just like confusion and sadness of this is all happening to us because we're black, and mm-hmm. I mean, and that's that's it, you know? Yeah, that it's, that's how you're treated. That it wasn't. We got a search warrant. We're gonna go through. It was let's. I mean, let's burn this house down. They didn't burn it down, but essentially it there's just a lot of echoes, the treatment, the behavior. And then this is 1999, which is now 20 years ago, 21 years. Yeah, 20 years ago. But it has those echoes back to the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s mm-hmm. when 
the clan would come in and do for stuff sure. like this and not get in trouble for it. Yeah. So again, it's, you know, if you don't want to see things like this happen, we need a lot of, a lot of reform essentially. And, and now the crook, again, the current police chief said, you know, if that did happen, it shouldn't have, you know, we, we've made strides. We, we don't like to hear that. So it's what you want to hear now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't do anything for them and for, you know, their destroyed house and their no. own lives. I have a question about them being able to go in without a search warrant. They did eventually. So they had Christopher Jordan in the car. That's why they were sitting out there waiting for them to they come out. They were waiting on the search warrant. And he warrant. gave okay. sufficient ev- he he said, "Oh, there's there's a gun in there." So you're like, "Oh, we have probable cause to go enter." You know, he's yes. like, "There's evidence." So they had also traced it back to where he had called the cops from a payphone mm-hmm. that was close by too. Mm-hmm. So arguably, he called the cops from the payphone. While Julius is, he knows Julius is at his brother's apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he passed him on the street. Yeah. And and J- Jordan, Chris Jordan said to Julius, hey, the cops are after us. Mm-hmm. And Julius kind of said, oh, man, the cops are after you and your brother. That's wild. I'm going to go over there and see what's going on. And so mm-hmm. your brain's like, this is, and then the cops call you and you're like, oh, I'm about to get mixed up in something. Hmm. So, you know, if you're Christopher Jordan, I'd take a deal, you know, as much as you tell them what they want to hear. Oh, yeah. I mean, because you, you see, it's you not see, right, but you would. We're about to, yeah. about to meet the character Cowboy Bob here. You see him on the news, this saying what he's he's gonna, you know, go for the throat, go him for the that, death penalty, him essentially. That goddamn tie. Fucking I couldn't hate that tie more. Could not yeah. hate it more. He's Every time they shit. showed him throughout the years, I mean, mm-hmm. fifty years with the, that same stupid looking tie on, I mm-hmm. hated him more and more. Oh, yeah. And then knowing what he did, it's Mm -hmm. even worse. The next day, on July 31st, 1999, Julius Jones was arrested by Oklahoma City Police. Because the crime had occurred in Edmond, they drove him there so he could be processed by that department. Once in Edmond, the officer let Julius out of his car to hand him over to the Edmond PD. As the officer removed Julius's handcuffs, he allegedly dared Julius to run and called him the N-word. The implication being that he would shoot Julius if he tried anything. Julius remembered his father's admonition never to run from police for this very reason. Terrified of being killed, Julius stood motionless and was arrested by Edmund PD and charged with capital murder. And this is why we see the importance of having body cams, you know, and recorders. So where, you know, you would hear this happen, you know, and hopefully that deterrent that would not happen because you're being recorded kind of thing. So. You know, 1999 to today, we've made some strides, but, you know, how many instances like that have happened? Yep. And he was asleep at Chris Jordan's brother's apartment when the police swarmed in. He said he was asleep and he just woke up and cops are everywhere, guns Mm -hmm. drawn, telling him, you know, you're being arrested. He was just in, like, basketball shorts. They took him in, no shirt, no shoes, Mm -hmm. anything to book him. So imagine you're woken up. You have no idea what's going on. And then next thing you know, you're just being led into into jail. Mm-hmm. And told, why don't you run, see what happens. Yeah. And then, yes, the, he said in the documentary, because they have taped interviews from um, him in, in prison, that he can't even describe how scared he was and how fast mm-hmm. his, his heart was racing. He's 19. He had just turned 19. Three mm-hmm. days before, he's a he's a kid, and mm-hmm. the look on his face when he's being led into that jail is just shock and terror. 
You're like, what did I get wrapped up in? No, what's yeah, going and on I here? I am being handled by racist cops. I have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. I can't call my mom. I don't have a lawyer here. I'm mm-hmm. totally alone. The next day, Oklahoma County District Attorney Robert Cowboy Bob Macy announced he would be seeking the death penalty in Julius's case. According to The Intercept, Macy preferred seeking the death penalty and had a track record of prosecutorial misconduct, frequently relying only on eyewitnesses and disregarding exculpatory evidence. During his years in office from 1980 to 2001, Macy himself secured 54 death sentences, nearly half of which were overturned. Others sadly were not, and the targets of his fervent use of capital punishment were executed often facing excruciatingly painful deaths due to Oklahoma's repeated mishandling of executions. Yeah, they call Bob Macy one of the deadliest prosecutors in U.S. history. And it's not that he retired in 2001. He resigned in disgrace amid further allegations of prosecutorial misconduct and evidence tampering. And yeah, yeah, it's like over a third, almost a half of all of his convictions are overturned because he was like the woman that worked in his office said it was get the conviction. We don't care what it takes. Yep. This is why my policy argument is that uh, prosecutors should be able to be uh, charged with something like uh, tampering with evidence or something like that. And the statute of limitations should run two years from the date of discovery because you see in a lot of these cases, you know, they fucked around in 1999 and this, you know, say in this case, and then you don't discover it until the appellate attorney gets a hold of the case in 2016, 2017. Well, by then the statute on something like that's run. You saw a case, Alfred Dwayne Brown in Houston's one of them where you found out that the prosecutor essentially shredded a piece of exculpatory evidence, didn't present it to the defense, didn't present it to the jury. And by the time it gets discovered, it's too late. The statute's already run. He's wears this badge of honor with pride that he, oh, yeah. I mean, he's in this interview is like an uh, innocent man was, you know, murdered in his driveway. This deserves the death penalty. An innocent man, a hundred percent was murdered in his driveway. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. But this guy just has this reputation of whoever I think did this, we're going to get him. We're going to get him fried. Well, and it's kind of like, Get me somebody. Yeah. I don't we care just who need it a, is. Yeah. We need a body and we need to say, hey, look how good I did. He's going down. 1980 to 2001. That is a reign of terror. Mm-hmm. Chris Jordan was reinterrogated by detectives after Julius's arrest. After all, it was Jordan who most fit the eyewitness's description of a man with at least an inch of hair sticking out from under the stocking cap. Julius had a tightly cropped cut that didn't show when he wore a hat. Jordan's hair was in cornrows and stuck out at the sides. Detectives walked Jordan through the crime, attempting to lead him to the foregone conclusion of Julius's guilt. Jordan struggled in the interrogation, seeming to implicate himself as he admitted he might have touched the gun or may have even loaded the gun in order to explain why his DNA may appear on the murder weapon. During the interrogation, Jordan repeatedly used the pronoun I before quickly changing or being reminded by the interrogating detectives to use the word he instead. He was also asked, So you hid the murder weapon? To which Jordan replied, Yeah. Eventually, Jordan pled guilty to felony murder in a deal with the district attorneys in exchange for a promise to testify against Julius. Yeah, this was, uh, you know, there's there's arguments on, I won't say there's arguments on both sides, but you definitely hear, you know, the family of Paul Howell wants, you know, 
their side of it to come out, which that's they absolutely have that right. But one and and the of course, Oklahoma attorney general has like no interest in, you know, backing down or like admitting anything. And one of the things was, you know, whether he essentially whether, you know, Chris Jordan said that, you know, said these things or if he was maybe led because he got a really good deal. And, you know, if you read the AGs and some of the the claims from the family, they say it wasn't a secret deal. It was, you know, totally on the table. Everybody knew what was going on. But, you know, he essentially he revealed later on that prior to testifying and prior to making these statements in the plea agreement, they said he would, you know, get this. The sentence would be life with all but 30 years commuted. And then they basically told him and his counsel Hey, listen, the 30 years, this is how they calculate it in the Department of Corrections. So really, you'll be out in 12 to 15. No worries. So he agreed to this saying, "Okay, well, my choice is this cowboy wants to literally kill me or 15 years in jail. And then obviously you would say whatever you needed to say Mm -hmm. to make the not death choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's become kind of a contentious argument of like what he understood and what he didn't know. But he's he's straight out said, no, I was told. It's going to be a life sentence, commuted to 30, but then really the way it's calculated, it will only be 15. And again, with, you know, the a lot of people saying, and even, I mean, there's transcripts of all of this. The interrogating officers do very much seem to be leading him in the direction of, well, you said that this, you mean he did this, right? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. and there, are, there is, even is a time where one of them says, are you sure we have the right person? Should we be looking at at you for this? And he's like, no, 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 no. But again, it's kind of seems like they just wanted someone. They wanted a body. They wanted an arrest. They wanted a conviction. And they already had Day Day King pointing the finger at Julius too. Now they were going to have Jordan to testify against him as well. And so this kind of just made things a lot simpler to not question Jordan. Yeah, and and you essentially say, okay, if you testify, this is what you get. Are you willing to testify? Versus tell us what actually happened, mm-hmm. and not leading him down. And he and there's there's recording of it in that in the last offense, and you can hear he sounds extremely nervous. The transcript shows he's kind of stuttering and skittering and isn't sure of himself, and especially you know using the wrong pronouns and answering like kind of off the cuff of yes. Oh, I, I mean, I might have touched it. I don't know. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's coached. Yeah. Julius's trial began on February 14, 2001, and was fraught with errors from the beginning. Several pieces of key rebuttal evidence simply weren't produced to the jury. Paul Howe's sister testified, again insisting that the perpetrator had an inch of hair sticking out from under the stocking cap he wore. Although defense attorney David McKenzie asked about the hair in cross-examination, The photo of Julius that had been taken nine days before the crime, clearly showing he had nearly buzzed hair, was never entered into evidence. Likewise, information on Chris Jordan's long cornrows at the time of the crime was never offered as evidence either. Appellate attorney Amanda Bass later called the cross-examination a disaster. Yeah, the whole trial was a disaster. It's a shit show, man. One of the three attorneys, one of them was still in law school. David yep. McKenzie, the main attorney, he said he had never. It was his first and only death penalty case. They said at the time, because Bob was hitting the gas on as many possible death penalty cases as possible, that all of the public defenders 
were they were like too busy. Yeah. Or the ones that didn't have any experience were just given a death penalty case and had to say, okay, I have to take it, even though they were not qualified to take it. And also, it's not that everybody is having a bad time here. It's people that can't afford to pay for a highly skilled attorney who specializes in capital cases. You literally get stuck with an attorney who does their best despite having no resources, no backing. He said the investigator, bless his heart, tried his best, but had no idea how to research for a capital case, didn't really have the money and ability to do all the things they needed to do to provide a zealous defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said... He couldn't remember his exact caseload, but he was thinking it was probably like 70 to 80 at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I'll be honest, I just didn't have time, didn't have time to dedicate like what you should dedicate to trying to save someone's life. Yeah, when it's that high of stakes, you should have somebody who specializes in that area. You Mm -hmm. can't just also, I mean, and he... uh, He's admitted several times he was deficient. He did stuff wrong. You know, he was negligent. He uses those words. But, I mean, I would say, as an attorney, we're not supposed to take cases that we are not uh, able to take. Like, you have to have a a, a conversation with yourself pretty much before you take a case that says, am I competent to practice in this area of law? Am I competent to do this? It's hard. You know, it's a rock and a hard place when it's like, I'm not, but also I'm the only person he has. Like, I have to do this. So what would happen if you said – if so he could have said – I'm not qualified to do this. Yes. As far as how the cases are divvied up, you know, when you're a public defender, you know, the judge may say tough shit. And then again, now we have a justice system that isn't just because people with no resources are legitimately screwed because then all they have is somebody who's not competent to take this case. And who is admitting I'm not competent to take this case. Repeated and doesn't have the resources to research it. Like didn't, I mean, Rodier went however it went. The prosecutors rejected all but one black juror. I mean, it's start to finish from jury selection on down. It is, there were so many objectionable things that he just didn't object to or didn't bring in evidence or didn't call and later said, yeah, I, I really messed that up. He's in in the yeah, he's very honest and very blunt about his mess ups in the in the documentary. I he's not, I would say, apologetic, but he seems like he's just like, yeah, I I what did not do a good job. I admit that. Like I was mm-hmm. in over my head. You know, and I mean, and the female attorney who was w- up mm-hmm. there too, she just was like, uh, it was her first case ever. Yeah, it wasn't even just it's my first death penalty case. It's that is mortifying. I mean, doing something like a simple prove up where nobody's really yelling at you, and you just got to go up and tell the judge, hey, we need to testify on the record. There's so many little tiny procedural things that, and that's just a simple, you know, it could be a family law or a probate kind of a situation. When it is a criminal case, that's bad. When it is a death penalty case mm-hmm. that is unfathomable that that's your first crack at it that literally is your first rodeo and you know and that you're going up cowboy against bob. cowboy bob that he's you know the king of the death penalty so mm-hmm. i think that gets in your head too from the beginning and you almost kind of like just you manifest like we're gonna we're gonna fuck this up you know i'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in way over my head there's no way i got this and it's he from the beginning, he was not given a fair chance at all. No. And on in the news, Bob Macy was saying, you know, he deserves to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was before they even charged him. So when you have this at the time, pretty well respected, he was in this twilight years. This was only you know, this was 2001. He June of that year, he 
resign mm-hmm. because of the prosecutorial misconduct. This was February, but you still, he's, oh, that's Bob Macy. He's been the DA forever. And you as the jury pool are essentially tainted because you see him on yeah. on the news going, he deserves it. He's got to die. So it's, uh, it was a stacked deck. Yeah. Julius's alibi was key to his defense, an alibi that his parents, brother, and sister could all corroborate. They had been with Julius, eating spaghetti and playing Monopoly the night of the murder. Of all four key alibi witnesses, none were called to the stand to testify about his whereabouts. When interviewed later for the documentary The Last Defense, defense attorney David McKenzie said the reason he didn't call any of them is because Julius had written a letter while in prison to a former girlfriend— saying that he had not been at his parents' house during the time the shooting took place. Julius remains adamant that he never wrote anything of the sort to anyone. McKenzie conceded that, regarding the failure to explore the alibi evidence. Maybe I was deficient. This was the only thing I heard about from anyone. I mean, his the his co-counsel's like, yeah, I don't know of any letter, and and Julius is like, I didn't, never even wrote to that person. I, I never would have said that. I don't know. It was never explained why McKenzie thought this, what this information was. I almost wonder if this is just a way for him to excuse his deficiency. Yeah. And I think later on in, I think 2004, a couple of years later, they swore in an affidavit that David McKenzie said, I subcontracted, whatever you want to call it, you know, I delegated to the investigator who, again, was untrained, unqualified poorly paid, no resources, said, okay, your job is to get the alibi info. And the the investigator, David McKenzie said, the investigator never gave me anything. He didn't give me notes. He didn't give me tapes. He didn't give me anything. Uh, so I just had to go off what I heard, which it sounds like was some murmurings about this letter. And you don't want to, as a defense attorney, if you think, okay, well, these people are going to, you know, if there's evidence that he wasn't there, I can't knowingly put them on the stand to perjure themselves. Well, the whole family's like, we're not perjuring ourselves. We were all there. There was a friend there. Antoinette was on the Wrongful Conviction podcast with Jason Flom. And she said, our friend was there. It was his birthday. There was like birthday cookie, or it was because it was a few days after Julius's birthday. There was like a birthday cookie in the refrigerator. The friend kept eating it. Julius is getting pissed at him because he was eating his birthday cookie. And Jason Flom's like, yeah, if you had committed a murder that night and it was around the time of the actual crime, he's like, why would you be annoyed with your friend because your friend is eating your cookie? You Mm -hmm. know, it's like there was multiple people all around there. So there was, I guess, some miscommunication or as David McKenzie said, I was deficient uh, in not presenting a simple thing like alibi evidence. I just can't wrap my head around it. I mean, I've never gone to law school and a ton of people haven't. But even, I mean, anyone could mm-hmm. could think, what's the first thing I should do to try and prove my client didn't do this? He's saying he was at home with his family and they can all say he's there. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It doesn't even take, like, the worst lawyer in the world to be like, I should probably go talk to his family. Yeah, or and that's if you're spitballing and you go, okay— you're, let's pretend you're a lawyer for a minute. Let's pretend your client is facing the death penalty. What kind of things would you ask your client or those around him that could possibly save his life? Yeah. Would you perhaps say, did he do it? Was he there? If not, where was he? Did you see him where he was? You know, that's pretty baseline yeah, stuff. It's so baseline. That's why I can't understand how incompetent this guy could have been. Mm-hmm. It's It's... 
I, I'm looking for answers. I know that you don't have any, but no, <laughs> just, just I mean, I, because and, you, and he doesn't really either. He's just like, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of didn't have a good day in court. I prepared. He said I prepared for weeks. First of all, if I'm on death row or the death row is an option, uh, please take longer than a few weeks. To, yeah, I mean, that's how yeah. long we prepare for episodes. You know, if yeah. somebody's life's on the line. I don't. I don't know the the start to finish of when he was assigned the case till when the the case began. But he, they were very overworked. There's no doubt about that. It's just maybe put some of your other cases on the back burner that don't involve the death penalty, so you can save this guy's life. Or you think at the time. Well, it's just one more of the cases. I'm not going to be on a documentary about this in 20 years. Right. You know, you just don't expect that it's going to, you're going to get questioned about it later. Yeah. I mean, kudos to him that he was, he did participate in the documentary because a lot of attorneys would be like, I'm not saying shit. You're not getting the right? interview out of me. And he, he owns it. He's like, yeah, I, I was deficient. I, and he still practices law. Yeah. Chris Jordan testified against Julius, describing to the court what he claimed took place that fateful night. Jordan said he and Julius had been driving around, looking to steal a car. Jordan said his job was to pick out the car they were going to jack. Once they spotted Paul House Suburban, they followed him into his neighborhood, where they parked on the street from the driveway Paul pulled into. Jordan said that Julius, armed with the gun, approached the vehicle while Jordan waited behind. Jordan went on to testify that while he didn't actually see Julius shoot Paul Howe, he heard gunshots and saw Paul fall to the ground. However, it was later discovered that from where Jordan claims he was standing, houses and trees would have obstructed his view. And that information comes out yeah. later when Amanda Bass and Dale Beige take over the case. So that wasn't something that happened in the court at the time, but it could have been. If yeah. your lawyer, again, like, you know his story, so you say, all right, let's I mean, they show on the documentary, they go to the street where it, it happened. They say he was standing here. It's this X amount of feet from where the driveway is. There's no way this could have happened. It's all very simple stuff you see on CSI, stuff you see in the yeah. movies. And it yeah. just, none of it was done. I mean, he would have had a better chance if I had been his lawyer. I mean, honestly, you know, having an, an investigator, the whole purpose is that they should go to the spot and take mm -hmm. photos. And then you have those photos entered into evidence and you go, OK, look over here. Now we can see this is the vantage point. This is allegedly. Are you telling us you can see through trees? I right. mean, and you poke holes in this cross, you know, you poke holes in his story during cross-examination. Uh, there was no defense put up, by the way. Yeah. They rested when it came to them. So all they had. What the chances they had, you know, the bites at the apple they had was rebutting the state's case. And then when you go, you know, we got nothing and you sit down. I mean, that's a message to the jury right there. Oh, yeah, totally. The jury's like, well, if they're not going to tell us why he didn't do it, then why should we think he didn't do it? Mm hmm. Kermit Lottie and Liddell King also testified. All three men received favorable treatment for doing so. Jordan spent just 15 years behind bars for felony murder while a pending felony third strike charge for check fraud against King that carried with it a 20-year sentence was dropped after his cooperation on Julius's case. Kermit's charge for federal drug charges, which carried a 40-year sentence, netted him only four years behind bars. During the cross-examination of Jordan, his credibility was never meaningfully challenged. 
David McKenzie conceded. I thought I did a terrible job of cross-examining him. Despite having prepared for weeks, McKenzie chalked this up to one of his worst days in court, to which Julius told filmmakers, He might have had a bad day. I'm having a bad life. And Julius says, you know, <sighs> when it comes time for the defense to present his case, and he just stands up and he's like, uh, we rest. And he he turns to Julius. He's like, we're not calling any witnesses. And Julius said he was just like, what? But there are four people that can tell you I where I was the night this happened. And he said, you know, he's... 21 at the at this at this time Mm -hmm. he was not a lawyer he said i trusted the my lawyers knew what they were doing which is what you would do yeah and then and that's what makes you as a lawyer so powerful and as a defendant so vulnerable Mm -hmm. that you say well i just have to defer to you because you went to law school and you're in charge and you should know uh and and you see what this case is based on like we said it's a confluence of a ton of stuff that you see in wrongful convictions where it's prior convicted folks who are facing, you know, third strike or federal charges who get a huge deal in exchange for their testimony. You know, Liddell King would have, it's a third strike, right? Like he's, that's a 20 year imprisonment Mm -hmm. that he's staring down that suddenly gets dropped. Mm -hmm. So that's nice. And then Kermit Lottie is about to get, you know, federal distribution like of drugs. That's Mm -hmm. a huge charge as well that, you know, a couple months before the trial signs a plea agreement and, you know, it gets dropped down to five to 40. And because he testified, it's even less than that. So, and shame on the attorneys and everything that do that too, because not only are you putting a wrong man behind prison, you're letting three criminals that you know for a fact have done things because mm-hmm. they're facing charges, letting them walk free to then just probably commit more crimes. Yeah. I mean, I believe he admitted to stealing cars and selling them. Liddell King had admitted to stealing cars. Like he, they had him for other things, mm-hmm. but in exchange for his testimony, they let him out. So that's when you, you start to see like, these are very biased witnesses, very uh, incentivized witnesses. Mm-hmm. They're incentivized to essentially say whatever the state wants them to say. And that's, that's just fact. I mean, it's fact that they face these charges and they got off and they got off in exchange for what they said. Yeah. So in this trial his defense julius's defense did not enter the picture of his hair which Mm-mm. robin bruno in the documentary who was the co-counsel and fresh out of law school at the time was like i thought we definitely should have entered that that could have been mm-hmm. the one thing that someone on the jury says no this is what gets him off and that's what saves his life you know mm-hmm. and i guess as co-counsel and being that young can you challenge Or is it just you're not in a position where you're confident enough to speak up and challenge? I mean, you say, hey, don't you think we should do that? But if your boss tells you no, that's fine. Just leave it. It's fine. Then what do you do? Yeah, you can't say, your honor, can I have a sidebar? Because I want to tell you that my boss is terrible at his job. Can you not? I've always wondered that. I mean, could you or even not in court, but like outside of court, go to the judge and be like, he is our client is not receiving effective counsel. I'll tell you right now, this attorney is not doing his job. Well, and or you know, tell whoever the boss is at the public defender's office, go, hey, I'm seeing some stuff that I'm worried about in court. But you know, can you blame her because she's a baby lawyer and she doesn't know her place? You know, and you tell yourself, okay, well, I'm just following orders. Or no, I'm asking, do we can have, you do that? 
oh, yeah, I mean, you can say anything you want to say when you want to say it. Is it going to be effective? Is it an official motion? You know, without the attorney of record signing it, you know, the the judge can try to enter it into the record. You want to say it outside the presence of a jury. Are they going to be pissed at you? They think you're trying yeah. to throw the, the trial and get a mistrial. But I, I, I'll say as a former baby lawyer, you you kind of do what your boss tells you. You know, mm-hmm. your ass is clenched and you're like, uh, shouldn't we be? Maybe we should. I mean, and you speak up. But mm-hmm. essentially, if they say no, you're kind of yeah backed into a corner. Yeah. I mean, and, and the whole hair thing that he asks in recross, um, David McKenzie asks in recross Megan Toby. So it's Paul Howe's sister. He says, ma'am, are you sure there was at least a half an inch of hair sticking out from underneath the cap? And she said, yes. Mm-hmm. So he clear he did clarify that, yeah. but the issue was then it was not brought out that Julia's head was shaved. Yeah, they did not enter the picture that clearly shows Julius did not have enough hair for that to make it him. Yeah, and she said she couldn't remember if there were braids or whatnot, but you, are you sure that there was at least a half an inch of hair sticking out from underneath the cap? Yes. I believe I read something earlier where she said... Because, as we'll see, they are the Howes are very confident that Julius did this. But they said, uh, she said, he did not have cornrows. I know that he didn't have braids. Again, is that really something you saw? Is that something now that you, you know what I mean? We've, we talk I mean, all the time, your memories are trash. And in a moment like that, it's hard to really um, pay as much attention as you as you would want to, I imagine. Well, and the details she got were, you know, the red bandana, the white shirt, the black male. But when you are the victim of a carjacking in progress, you're going to suffer from the weapon focus effect, which is when the weapon is distracts the eyewitness. It'll mess your memory up. You're mm-hmm. not going to remember a lot of details because weapons are unusual, right? You're not used to seeing them. You're not yeah, used to having a gun pointed at you. And you've got two and little so, girls in the back seat. You're trying not yeah. to get killed. Yeah, so of course you're not going to memorize, you know, head to toe what's going on there. And then when you hear somebody go 20 years later, 100% sure I'm saying there was no cornrows. Mm-hmm. But at the time of the trial, she said, oh, I don't know if he had braids mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. So stories change, your memory changes. Again, we talked about before, it's just what you've remembered is now a memory of the last time yeah. you remembered it. And so mm-hmm. it becomes hard when you're so also obviously with absolute valid reason that you're very emotionally caught up yes. in this that you you would tell yourself in your heart no i know this is the right thing yeah yeah before deliberations a concerned juror approached the judge she had heard something disturbing while walking with other jurors in the hallway one of her fellow jurors called the trial a waste of time and said to the rest of the panel they should just take this in word out back shoot him and bury him under the jail the judge entered into the record that a juror had said to shoot julius but conveniently left out the references to the racial slur. The judge asked each juror to verbally confirm that they could remain fair and impartial. One by one, they each agreed. The juror who called for Julius's lynching was not removed or replaced on the jury. That same jury found Julius guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death. Which, this is part of the argument they brought in in the appellate uh the petition for the writ of cert for the supreme court that you know this violates your sixth amendment right to a fair trial with an impartial jury i mean it's tainted by yeah i mean not only is this juror you know already is it doesn't matter 
if there is guilt or innocence. This is a black man that killed a, a white man. He's guilty. I mean, yeah, uh, essentially said that. Too. Yes, yeah. and that's what the juror that that spoke out about this said is, it didn't matter anything. They they were going to say he was guilty no matter what. And then you have that juror that potentially is going to convince maybe other jurors that are on the fence, like, no, he did this. So mm-hmm. it completely taints the jury. And also, it's he sh- the judge left out something that automatically, wouldn't he have had a mistrial at that point if that had come out that he, a juror was saying racial slurs? Well, the, no, because, again, the judge here has asked each juror whether they can remain fair and impartial. I I think that it is violates his constitutional right. I think that, you know, there's a certain uh, standard that's set up by the Supreme Court for when a uh, racial comment runs afoul of your Sixth Amendment right to an impartial jury or juror, you know, jury here in your case. And, you know, I think it has to be a clear statement that indicates that they relied on racial stereotypes or animus to convict the defendant. That's, you know, they say it has to say the statement would exhibit overt racial bias that casts serious doubt on the fairness and impartiality of the deliberations and verdict. I mean, I think this fits Sounds the like constitutional it did that to me. standard. Uh, our Supreme Court disagreed uh, when the petition came before it. You know, the petition was denied. I, I'm not on the Supreme Court yet. I just <laughs> strongly yeah. disagree. Um, you know, and they say that the racial bias would have to be a significant motivating factor in the jurors vote to convict. To me, if someone says this is a waste of time, we should just kill this black person, which didn't use that phrase, mm-hmm. used a much worse phrase. And the, to me, that checks the boxes. Yes. Right. And and again, it's necessarily tainted it. So I don't see how this this didn't, uh, you know, get reviewed by the Supreme Court. But. I I don't see how this is my can sum up my entire uh, thoughts on this entire case. Yeah. There's so many times I w- I don't see how this didn't get entered into evidence. I don't see how this guy could be in jail and this one be walking free. I mean, it's just from start to finish, none of it makes sense and all of it's unfair. Yeah, and that's what you want is a fair trial at the end of the day, which if everybody, you know, still thinks he's guilty, then by all means, let's just take him to trial and have a fresh jury Mm -hmm. look at everything and say, okay, here's the picture of him, you know, the week before it happened, nine days after it happened with the haircut or whatever it was before it happened with the haircut. Here's there's a non-racially tainted jury. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not comments made. The Verdier goes better to where not all of the black panelists in the Venire panel get struck. He has effective counsel. He has also, effective there counsel. There was no, there were, his fingerprints were not on the Suburban. Mm-hmm. He, if he had been driving that car, how, how would that have happened? He, they did not test the bandana for DNA at until the time later. of the trial until, yeah. until much later, which is just how, how the fuck did that, that happen? So there's all these things that, just were completely ignored that I think if he had another trial now, I'm confident a jury today would say he is not guilty. And where you have people that have heard confessions from Chris Jordan testifying and saying, Mm -hmm. he told me this is what's going on and letting that jury take all that information in. Mm -hmm. Julius attempted to appeal his sentence. He told filmmakers, Justice has not been served. The person who took Mr. Howell's life is walking the streets. In 2016, 
federal public defenders were assigned to his case. Immediately, they saw multiple errors with his conviction. Among those, the overt racial bias showed by the jury, the lack of exculpatory evidence presented at trial, and the failure of law enforcement to test the red bandana for DNA. Finally, in July of 2020, the red bandana was tested. Tests showed that three donors were present on the bandana. Federal Public Defender Amanda Bass explained in the last defense. The lab determined that there was a partial DNA profile that was consistent with Julius's DNA profile at 7 out of 21 tested genetic markers. These results do not constitute a match under law enforcement standards. Fellow Federal Public Defender Dale Bache told the Oklahoman, We've always known that Mr. Jones's DNA could be on the bandana because his DNA was present in his parents' home where the red bandana was planted. Bache told Oklahoma News 4, There were also at least three other male DNA profiles on the bandana, but that DNA was too degraded to compare with other known DNA profiles. Before adding, We don't even know if the bandana the shooter wore was the same one found in Julius's room. Refusing to acknowledge the test results as significant, Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter told News 4, The inclusive results of the DNA profile show the probability of the DNA belonging to someone other than Julius Jones is 1 in 110 million. So this is where, you know, you get it gets a little bit confusing because I think people think, oh, well, if you test DNA, then that would, you know, totally exonerate him. Right. If his DNA wasn't on the bandana, that would totally exonerate him. Maybe, maybe not. You know, they said the the witness said that the shooter screamed at them. So you would think that when someone screams with a bandana over their Mm -hmm. mouth, a, a ton of saliva would get deposited into it. There was not saliva on the bandana. You know, they said. 14 of 21 loci had no results or were inconclusive because they had, you know, it was degraded because it wasn't tested at the time. And the serology that would have tested for saliva was negative. And then they also said they could not exclude Chris Jordan's DNA from three or more individuals whose DNA was found in the sample. So he wasn't confirmed, but they couldn't exclude him. Also, when you see the footage and the the photos of the crime scene investigators, well, I won't say crime scene investigators, from the uh, marauders that were uh, manhandling all the items at the crime scene with their gloves, they are touching items Mm -hmm. in Julius's room, dozens and dozens of items, and then climb up into the uh, hatch above his closet and pick up the the bandana so if you don't have spit on it but you do have a partial tiny bit you know 13 out of or 7 out of 21 markers on that bandana is that transference Mm -hmm. dna again this is something that a jury should be able to hear yes absolutely over the years three different cellmates have reported that chris jordan confessed to them that he pulled the trigger and set julius up first manuel littlejohn a former inmate of Chris Jordan's, signed a sworn affidavit in which he recalled. Jordan stated that he felt guilty because he was going to implicate his co-defendant, Julius Jones, in a, in a murder case to avoid getting the death penalty. Jordan stated that he had wrapped the gun used to commit the murder in his case in a bandana and hid it in Julius Jones's house. Regarding the murder case, Jordan stated to me, Julius didn't do it, and Julius wasn't there. Another prisoner, Christopher Barry, swore in an affidavit that Jordan bragged. About how he was the actual person who shot the victim in his case. Mr. Jordan also said that because he was the first person to talk to police, he was getting a deal and he would not get the death penalty. The third prisoner Jordan confessed to was Roderick Wesley, a man serving a 50-year sentence on aggravated robbery in an Arkansas prison. Wesley sent a letter to Julius's defense team after watching The Last Defense on ABC. Wesley reported that Jordan confessed to setting Julius up multiple times, including telling Wesley... My co-defendant's on death row behind a murder I committed. 
When questioned further, Wesley recalled Jordan saying he felt bad for Julius, but that he was not willing to jump out there and give himself up to the wolves. None of the men were offered any incentive or shorter sentences in exchange for disclosing their information, according to the Oklahoma City Sentinel. Additionally, none of the men know one another or Julius Jones. This is very telling because they yeah. have they have nothing to gain from this. And in the documentary, one, they show a picture of another one. The attorney, you know, he's signing the affidavit. He's got a blur over his face. He doesn't even want to be known because mm -hmm. snitches get stitches. But he said, I couldn't stand the thought of this innocent man dying for something that I know that somebody told me he didn't do. And I know who did it. So, I mean, they, these people are just coming forward because they feel like it's the right thing to do. They're not getting anything for it. Unlike the three people that testified against him that got him put there. I mean, and the, the thing that I find telling, uh, ironic that the attorney general and, uh, some of the other, prosecutors involved, but particularly the attorney general, tries to discredit these witnesses and says, well, they have nothing to lose. They're all a bunch of felons. Why should we listen to a bunch of felons and criminals? That's literally who, whose uh, information you convicted him on. Yeah. So it's interesting to say, well, at trial, we're happy mm -hmm. to listen to people who are facing criminal sentences or who have previously served time. But now when it comes to exoneration evidence, that's not sufficient anymore. But especially I think you have to look at who has the incentive to lie. Mm -hmm. And these none of these three people were offered anything in exchange for telling this. But apropos of nothing, uh, you know, Roderick Wesley just said, I saw this on TV and thought, oh, shit, I know that guy. Mm -hmm. I know Chris Jordan. I got to tell them. Um, and then on top of that, the other two prisoners, you know, swore in an affidavit and they didn't get anything back for it. So versus the three that, like you said, testified at trial, they had every reason in the world to point the finger. So it's just interesting to me that the attorney general tries to say, oh, well, these oh, sure. three criminals are speaking lies. Well, it's like lies. anything. It's like when it works in your favor, then you're mm -hmm. all for it. But as soon as it doesn't, then all of a sudden there's all these problems with it. Mm -hmm. As news spread of Julius's predicament, well-known exoneration advocates began calling for justice. The Innocence Project began sharing the petition, asking for clemency. Exoneration activist Kim Kardashian visited Julius in prison in 2020 and spent time with his family. She posted a plea to her 263 million Instagram followers to sign the petition, calling for commutation of Julius's death sentence. Nearly overnight, the petition went from having 500,000 signatures to over 6 million. It's funny to me, and I think it's probably rooted in a lot of misogyny that you hear people be like, fuck Kim Kardashian, what does she know? And she, to her, you know, to everybody's credit, she did fail the baby bar, which is extremely hard, but she does genuinely, truly work tirelessly on behalf of, you. she has a billion dollars. If you have a billion dollars, mm -hmm. you can do whatever you want. But mm -hmm. instead, she meets with families, uses her platform where people will do what she says to do. And instead of saying, buy my lipstick, which she probably also does, says, you need to be aware of this injustice that's happening in your community. And she did an interview with Jason Flom on the Wrongful Conviction podcast and talked about she's driven once she received letters from somebody telling her about this case and she looked into it and she saw, like I said, it's a confluence of all the things you see in these wrongful conviction cases mm -hmm. that she wanted to, to try to help. And if somebody has a lot of influence and power and they want to use that influence for good, then I don't know why, you know, you want to shit all over them for trying to, you know, in this case bringing attention to uh, an injustice that she perceives mm -hmm. or sees. And Common, John Legend, mm -hmm. 
uh, Blake Griffin, who, oh, yeah. you know, at the time when just by happenstance, Julius is coached by his dad, Blake was much younger, you know, mm-hmm. but now he's an NBA star and he's from Oklahoma. So, you know, he wrote to the governor and and said, I I just want you to know on, on his behalf, like, I really think his case needs to be relooked at. Like, there's so much mm-hmm. evidence that he didn't get a fair trial. So... Absolutely. If you've got a platform, use it for good. Use your power yeah. for if, with anybody. Use your power for good. For Paul House family, the intense media scrutiny caused more trauma. His daughter Rachel, who was nine years old when she witnessed his murder, told Oklahoma Four News, "I've had to really face this as an adult because I was little when this happened. So when this all started blowing up in the media and the celebrities and the last defense, I had to sit there and be like, okay, so did he do it?" And I needed to form an opinion for myself. And so I dug into everything because I wanted to know, this is my life. This is my trauma. And yeah, he's guilty. Paul's brother, Brian, questioned the motives of the celebrities involved in the case. Whatever the agenda is, maybe it's to make a movie, to write a book at the end. I don't know. They've certainly taken the truth and justice and totally eliminated that and taken it out of the equation. I mean, my heart goes out to this family. They suffered a horrible injustice. These kids and his sister witnessed something no one should ever have to witness. Mm-hmm. Rachel said that she can clearly remember looking out the car window and seeing the perpetrator walk up to the window with a stocking cap on, bandana, silver gun down at his side, and that she knows it was Julius. Well, there's a lot of holes in that because... His face was covered. Mm-hmm. You were nine at the time. You're trying to recall this now as an adult. I mean, again, you have the weapon focus effect. Yes. Our, our memories from nine to now are, are two totally different things. I also don't know really what, because they keep saying the evidence, no one, the celebrities don't get the evidence. Nobody ever is getting the true evidence. They're just being spoon fed this information. The only evidence I think that they're relying on is that the gun was found in his house. Mm-hmm. But not taking into consideration the fact that Jordan was there the night before and, and all of these other things. And I think that it's a case of you want this so bad to be behind you, which his sister has said, like, we don't we were surprised that this got brought back up. I don't understand why all these celebrities are so invested in this case. It it's over and done with, you know. We're being revictimized. I just want it to be over and you do. You just you want to like it to not have to see it in the news every day. Mm-hmm. I get that. So you don't want to go back through it. You're like this is the answer. We're going to just take this as an answer and move on. But that doesn't mean that it's the right answer. True. And, and I think you, like you said, have complete empathy for a family that's gone through this and then is now having to go through it all again and rehash it and being interviewed and asking for, they're being asked for statements and things like that. Uh, the flip side is they they don't have justice because mm-hmm. if the evidence lines up and it was Chris Jordan or someone else, then that person only got 15 years. And when, you know, wouldn't that upset you as a family mm-hmm. member versus saying, you know, absolutely it was this person. I will say the science does not back up uh, 
that being 100% sure, like you said, the, the obscured face, the weapon focus effect. Also, if you live in a racially homogenous community, they said Edmund was 85% white. You have a much higher likelihood of misidentifying someone. They call it cross-racial misidentification. They cover, I think it's episode six of the Innocence Files. They get into, they use a specific case as an example, but they talk to a psychologist who specializes in cross-racial identification and misidentification. And I mean, the science confirms it, that it's easier to identify someone of your own race. It has nothing to do with being racist or being prejudiced whatsoever. It has to do with the way your brain processes the faces of people from different groups than you, from somebody that looks different than you. I mean, and the research shows unequivocally that it is highly unlikely that you're going to make as accurate of an identification of someone from a different racial group. So this is a you hear this and you'll hear it on the if you watch the innocence files episode six the book actual innocence which is written by barry sheck and peter newfeld who created the innocence project there's cases in that that talk about where people say i was raped a person's face was directly in front of my face a hundred percent it's this person and then 10 years later the dna is tested and it's not that person Mm -hmm. and so it's case after case of that where more time is spent with someone and they say they're 100% sure of a face. And they also show it. It's it's narrative irony because they'll have a white person look at the accused and the person who it was, you know, proved with DNA evidence. And the white person goes, yeah, these people look alike. You can see their noses are similar. Their hairline's pretty much the same. Then they show it to a person of color, specifically member like members of the black community or people that are biracial. And they even, they say, oh my God, their noses are totally different. Their hairlines are completely different. Mm-hmm. So it's Side by side, um, it's like a little mini experiment that they show, but they do have these uh, psychologists. And they also um, have done studies, they they detail it in Actual Innocence in the book, where they play, you know, they do it in a classroom where two guys get into a fight and then they ask everybody in the classroom to write down what happens and what color shirt they were wearing, what color hat they were wearing, and they all come out with different things. Mm-hmm. So you just see that that's not the most credible thing, even if someone truly, truly believes in their heart that that's what they saw. You, you know, you're, you don't blame them for that, but also you cannot put someone to death for that. No, and that's why you use science in a court of law and, and stuff that isn't biased, A person is biased, can be biased, and can Mm -hmm. misremember and misidentify. But science, it's a lot harder to make those types of errors. There's no emotion in science, you know? DNA, they have no agenda. It's just telling you what what it sees. So when you put someone to death strictly on uh, circumstantial evidence in an eyewitness Mm -hmm. account... You just can't do that. Yeah. I mean, it's you have to be sure. And, you you know, when you have three witnesses with the incentive to lie. Then dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. I mean, fill in the blank. Julius Jones was scheduled to be executed on November 18th, 2021, even after the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board voted three to one on two separate occasions to commute his death sentence, citing doubts in his case. The panel is made up of individuals appointed by the governor and the Court of Criminal Appeals. Two of the votes for clemency came from gubernatorial appointees. During the commutation hearing, Julius's attorney Amanda Bass made compelling arguments, telling the panel, 
The defense attorneys at trial were under-resourced and overworked, in, way over their heads, did not call a single witness, did not call Julius himself to testify in Julius's defense in the guilt stage of his trial. Had the jury heard this evidence of Julius's innocence, we know, because at least three jurors have said so in sworn affidavits, that it would have made a difference. One of the two governor appointees, Adam Luck, stated at that hearing, Personally, I believe in death penalty cases there should be no doubts. And put simply, I have doubts about this case. Less than four hours before Julius was scheduled to die by lethal injection, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt granted clemency, instead sentencing Julius to life in prison without the possibility of parole. One of his two federal public defenders, Amanda Bass, remained resolute, saying, Governor Stitt took an important step today towards restoring public faith in the criminal justice system by ensuring that Oklahoma does not execute an innocent man. While we had hoped the governor would adopt the board's recommendation in full by commuting Julius's sentence to life with the possibility of parole in light of the overwhelming evidence of his innocence, we're grateful that the governor has prevented an irreparable mistake. The death penalty no longer an option is a positive step. However, many believe an innocent man remains behind bars. His life stripped from him before it had much of a chance to begin. Julius's sister, Antoinette Jones, told the Oklahoman, We aren't sure yet what our legal options are or what the path forward looks like, but we are still committed to bringing Julius home, and we will never give up that fight. So what do we think? (sighs) Like I said, this is a perfect storm of all the things that lead to uh, wrongful convictions. I mean, for now, I I don't think he's going to be getting out of prison anytime soon. The governor's commutation of his sentence you know it's great because he was not executed and that's what his sister had to say say she kept saying i feel so privileged that you know so many people have been executed that were on death row because of bob macy or because of whoever wrongfully convicted and executed so she's like we have to at least be positive that he wasn't killed Mm -hmm. but the governor's order stipulates it says verbatim that julius shall never again be eligible to apply for be considered for or receive any additional commutation, pardon, or parole. Gosh, I just so. don't get it. I mean, it's, like you said, it's the perfect storm. It's it's as if someone wrote a movie on a wrongful conviction. Like, mm-hmm. all of the elements that need to take place for something like this to happen. And the story is so from an outsider's perspective, like so black and white that Mm -hmm. you would think like, there's no way in 2021 that he can't get a new trial and still like, yes, his life was not taken. That's great. But to know like, but you're still going to be in jail for the rest of your life. You're going to die in there. Mm -hmm. What kind of life is that? It's true. I mean, like we said with, you know, not executing people, you at least give them the opportunity to, you know, get reformed, try to make a difference, try to make a positive impact on the world from, you know, even from behind bars. But, you know, in this case where you say, you know, I don't believe that there was sufficient evidence to prove that he did this beyond a reasonable doubt. If, you know, somebody wants to say, well, the DNA kind of proves he might have been there or the gun was in his house or whatever. I mean, I think it is unequivocal when you look at what was presented to the jury and what was not presented to the jury. And if it was all there, if the the pieces had not been missing from Mm -hmm. the puzzle and if there was not the racial bias that, you know, in the jury member that we heard. And then, you know, the jurors have said in sworn statements afterwards, oh, God, if we knew all that, we would have voted different. Like Mm -hmm. I never would have convicted him. But when they're given the evidence from the prosecutor, that's 
weakly, if not at all, rebutted by the defense, and the defense says, we rest, Your Honor, and they have nothing, then, yeah, the jury voted on what they had at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we should all care that our criminal justice system is broken in this manner, in that people have not received a fair trial. And then later on, when that's discovered, they go, well, you know, you exhausted the appeals process. You need to advocate for policy changes in the places that you live. If you live in Oklahoma or whatever state you live in, that you say, we don't want to see, first of all, we don't want to see people literally actually tortured. Yeah. I'm telling you, reading those articles about executing people in Oklahoma will make you weep. It is horrific. And the fact that they just uh, stopped the moratorium and they gave them the green light to kill people again, awful. I mean, horrendous. But you know, you, you want to make sure that if somebody does end up on death row, they shouldn't at all. But if they do, that it's beyond a reasonable doubt they have a shot at a new trial. In this case, you know, she, Amanda Bass brought up the case, uh, the Supreme Court case, um, Pena Rodriguez versus Colorado, which is what they used whenever they petitioned the Supreme Court. Supreme Court matters, right? Because they're going to deny a petition on this argument that, okay, well, we have these sworn statements by these jurors that say, there was racial bias and the court goes, yeah, but we also don't care. Sorry, petition denied. You know, so there's just a lot of stuff to untangle and the stuff that you can, you know, we always say, like, what can I do about this is making sure you know who your DA is, who you vote for, making sure you organize around uh, state level legislature legislators that they're putting forth criminal justice bills and reform bills. I'm telling you, changing the uh, statute of limitations on uh, what a prosecutor can get prosecuted for. You know, when you see misconduct or tampering with evidence or things like that, uh, there's a lot to there's a big laundry list of things that I think need to be reformed uh, for him in particular. Maybe there will be some type of reform that says, you know, that can give him another bite at the apple. Is we that hope. basically what you hang your hat on at this point is that um, because he can't just be granted a new trial unless Mm -mm. a law is changed that retroactively affects his case. Yeah. And, and he's out. Yeah. He's out of appeals as the law as it stands now, he's out of appeals unless there's some sort of change that says, you know, prisoners that have, I I don't know. I don't know what the law would even say. That's a, I it's giving Tuesday. This will come out the the next day. It's tomorrow, but it's never too late to give. Um, I have like a monthly recurring donation that goes to the innocence project because they do have a policymaking arm that studies these things in each state and says, okay, this state, there's a fast track. You know, Oklahoma, for instance, is, it has the highest black incarceration rate. It's like over four times more black inmates than white inmates. And luckily, Governor Stitt has done a little bit to alleviate that. And they, they commuted a bunch of sentences and let folks out of jail. But, you know, you want to see these policy changes and uh, supporting organizations that do that. The Innocence Project is a great one. They didn't take his case. I couldn't quite figure out why. I know from when I did application evaluations, it has to be DNA can prove actual innocence for them to take your case. And that wouldn't happen here. Um, But they have been behind him in the fight. They, I believe, one of the uh, lawyers for for the Innocence Project was an executive producer, I think, on the last defense. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. I may I may be wrong, but you know they've shared they have uh, uh, articles about the case on their site and they share the petition and things like that. So I think that this is probably um, a fight that they'll they'll continue to help. You know, uh, Dale Bash and Amanda Bass, and uh, if Kim Kardashian can help, whoever can help to say, hey, these are policy initiatives that will stop this from happening in the future. And possibly something that could retroactively, you know, work in his favor. I mean, right now, though, he's out of appeals. So, yeah. And his he, family's just praying. Yeah. And he remains hopeful. I mean, 
in his interviews, he's for one, he's a wonderful poet. He reads some of his poetry and it's just like uh, beautiful and, and heartbreaking. But he remains hopeful. And even when he thought he was going to be executed, his sister said, you know, they went to see him. and He said, it gives me peace to know that you guys are still going to be living. And she's just destroyed. And oh. she's like, I that's not what we want. You know, I mean, we. To to know, she's like, I know 100% my brother did not do this. I was there with him that night. And the frustration and anger, you've got to feel, you're just screaming into the void and no one will listen or help you. It's, I can't even begin to wrap my head around it. And that's why this one was such a hard one, because I just feel so helpless. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start doing Giving Tuesday and like other things. And we'll post in the show notes like, Ways that, that you can help because right now, because I looked earlier, there's not really petitions to sign right now because the petition that they wanted signed was to get his execution stayed, which luckily it did. So because that was so recent, nothing new is up yet. But, you know, we, we'll um, we'll post some links and the Innocence Project has the case up on, on their site as well. And that's just a wonderful organization at all. But yeah, the more... I don't. I think right now, he, you you hang your hat as him and his attorneys and his family on that there will be some sort of reform that retroactively affects his case. Yeah, and the, and and you know his sister said it best. I think she said, if if Paul Howe's family is sure of it, if the attorney general is sure of it, and they're super sure that beyond a reasonable doubt he did this, okay, then he deserves a trial where he has effective counsel Mm -hmm. where all of this evidence including the bandana with the dna with Mm -hmm. the the partial you know match if that's something that a jury would say no we think that means he wore it that night but i think dale base makes a good point that just because his dna is on it because they touched it you know there's no saliva from where someone would have been spitting on Mm -hmm. it you know it doesn't really match but all that stuff you know i think should be presented to a new jury but at this point you know he's out of he's out of appeals so help for some sort of policy change. Yeah. And the sisters, Paul House's sister said that Julius wrote her and mm-hmm. said, you know, if if you were to change your testimony, it could possibly save my life. And she is not. They're very, they're under the, um, they believe that the, the police got the right person and the right person's behind bars. You know, and she said she did not appreciate the letter and that she's being re-victimized by him. But there are two families here that lost loved ones. And Mm -hmm. I know that there's, they're grieving and they're grieving in different ways. I wish that his family, Paul House family could perhaps just look at it from a different point of view. And it's so hard to do, but I don't know. One, what we see here is when the criminal justice system is weakened, broken, whatever you want to label it as, you are re-victimizing this family Mm -hmm. that even if Julius Jones was guilty because he had such a shitty trial, because he had ineffective assistance, because this evidence wasn't presented, then that leads to doubt. Then that leads to this whole mess that's now lasted 20 years. So even from that perspective, if you know, you're listening and you're like, I think he really did do it. Well, you can see how having these cracks in the system, we can't say, well, just because I have a gut feeling or just because I know in my heart I saw him that he should be executed. You have to say, no, it has to be a clean conviction that is 
beyond a reasonable doubt, which at this point, I think the jurors who've come forward and said, if we had heard that exculpatory evidence, if he had had a defense presented, we would not have voted that way. That tells you all you need to know. Mm -hmm. And again, would that all that information being presented to a new jury, would that mean, you know, result in another conviction? I don't think it would. And that's the standard we should all yeah. hold our justice system to. So I don't think, I think no matter what side of it you fall on it, you have to agree that for, there's a sufficient a ton of, tons of evidence that didn't get heard by a jury. And also we can't have a system that operates this way where you have Cowboy Bob, you know, kicking it into sixth gear, trying to send as many people to the, you know, lethal injection table as possible, no matter what it takes, no matter, uh, you know, who's who's hurt in the process, I think, because it it creates these questions. Because it could be your kid. Mm-hmm. It could be your kid that is snatched from their home and they were just having dinner with you and playing board games one night, had nothing to do with what was going on. Mm-hmm. And then now they're, you're trying to fight for their life. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that you, you just saw them not get murdered thank thank goodness but they're still in prison she's the his mom on the documentary said her father-in-law passed away and they allowed Mm -hmm. julius to come to the funeral and that was the last time she was able to you know hug him and put her arms around him and that their whole relationship has been behind glass and she's like it's like a dream like i can't even Mm -hmm. comprehend really even now that this has happened and it is it's because it's this isn't supposed to happen we're supposed to live in a world where our justice system is just that just and it's mm-hmm. not and we in the past two years more than ever have seen that it is not mm-hmm. you know so perhaps because of everything that's gone on in the past couple years there will be some sort of reform and hopefully this man gets out of prison because his he has spent more time on this planet behind bars than he has not. Yeah. And and, and at the very least another bite of the apple and say, you know, present the evidence mm-hmm. and it and and let the the chips fall where they may because I don't yeah. think they would they would fall in favor of a conviction, which would tell you everything you need to know about what the attorney general or whoever, you know, would have that power the faith he has in the conviction mm-hmm. that it was that it was rickety, right? It wasn't based on on as much evidence as as everybody wants to say it was, at least not in my opinion. And you have to ask yourself if you are the governor or the AG or or the house. I think it might be a little easier to answer for the house or anyone that's like, no, he absolutely did it. Why do you want it to be so true? Why are mm-hmm. you? Why do you have to be right? I mean. Why, what if you could be wrong? What if mm-hmm. everyone could be wrong? You know, like, why do you have to stay so convicted to something when if it's, if it's right, it will come out fairly in a court of law and it will mm-hmm. be just, but if it's, if it's not, then also justice will be served. But if you're so convinced that you're right, then what's the harm in like proving you're right once again? Yeah. That's what Antoinette said. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Hey, we're doing a live improv show December 3rd at Dallas Comedy Club in Dallas, Texas in the Deep Ellum neighborhood. Uh, Christy, what is Hot Dish? Well, besides you, Hot Hello. Dish is a uh, rotating cast of some great improvisers. There's either a stand-up comedian or a wonderful storyteller that tells a story or does some stand-up at the beginning. And then we as improvisers do some make em ups uh, based on that. So it's always a lot of fun. Everyone in the cast is always super fun. I've been in several now and I've had a great time every single time. And this Friday, 
it's going to be the best one because we get to be in it together. The one I, the my most fun one so far was when me and you were in it together. So I think this one's going to be the same. Reunited. So it December feels so good. <laughs> December third at nine p.m. at Dallas, Texas. You go to dallascomedyclub.com. There's also if you go to sinisterhood.com/slash/live-shows, I put you a little link on there to get mm-hmm. tickets. Uh, and then December seventeenth, sadly, Christy will not be joining me, but I will be joined by the rotating cast of veteran and newbie improvisers and we always have a hoot so come on down to dallas comedy club hoot and holler hoot and holler there we love providing sinisterhood to you at no cost so if you like what you hear consider supporting the show by donating to our patreon we're a small operation creating the show for you by researching writing recording and producing it ourselves any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of hosting and making the show as a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tiers, which we've had a lot of cool uh, pet photo threads and just a lot of support threads. People were having a tough time at the holidays and we were all everybody's getting on there and, and supporting each other. You Love also it. get a special shout out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode. We just did one on Annabelle the Doll and the Horrors of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And also patron exclusive video and audio content like the video of Christy punching me in the head at the <laughs> Wax Museum. Um <laughs> You also get to hear us do Am I the Asshole? Dear Sinister, Judge Christy, in our new segment, Unpopular Opinions, where I said a horrific thing about a television show and I've gotten a ton of mean DMs. I'm just kidding. People were horrified at my my opinion. But hey, it's unpopular. We also live stream our monthly performances of bonus content for those in the Getting Into It tier. And as a patron, you get to pick what our live stream things are. And like this episode, if you're in the Getting Into It tier, you get to pick what episodes we do on the main feed. Mm Mm-hmm. And those live streams have been so fun, man. The Q&As are fun, too. It it really is something that we look forward to. Oh, yeah. And we have a ton of fun chatting with, with everyone. The questions are always so funny. Like, we just laugh. Like, it feels like a treat. I, sometimes I have to be like, I can't believe, like, this is my job because I'm just getting to, like, hang out, log on and hang out and have fun and, and laugh with, with people. And there's always regulars and... It's we feel like we all know each other. It's it's awesome. And the the last time we got a tri a brown town trifecta because Tommy Paris and the famous George Brown, Tommy's father, joined the chat, y'all. It was, it it was, was the holy trinity. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> it was it was awesome. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post more adorable pictures of your pets. We also hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. For patrons not in the U.S., you now have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership, and some people have been saying that they are gifting a year of Sinisterhood Patreon to their loved ones. There's not really a gift option. You basically sign up, and then later you can change it to your recipient's email address is kind of how Patreon Mm -hmm. uh, recommends it. Or you can just get them like a gift card for the amount. Uh, But that's a way to support the show and show your loved one that you can care you could also like make a cute little card saying that's what it was i know a lot of people have been dming and emailing saying that they got their loved ones sinisterhood merch for christmas Mm -hmm. so that's super fun you know what also treat yourself this holiday season oh yes yes and what's more of a treat than spending more time with us heather (laughs) hanging out on the live streams absolutely 
For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-outs. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. You guys look amazing. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag, stuff somebody's stocking with something amazing. Mm-hmm. You get t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos. Visit Sinisterhood.com. Click on Shop in the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood Christy. I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout-outs. Jessica Rowe. Julie Roberge. Poppy Jones. Valerie Bonney. Sarah Stricker. Sam. Natara Joyner. Stephanie Vondren. Liz. Alyssa Corda. Sen. Shannon McGuire. Amanda Ryman. Melissa Miller. Jenny. Sarah Rogers. Bailey Thorpe. Courtney Cloud. Caitlin. Raquel Gomez. Alexandria Wallace. Jimmy Kelly. Michelle Hopkins. Ada Ramirez. Melissa Bergman. Jessica Thwaite. Bethany LePayne. Lizzie Nastu. Megan Shepherdson. Catriona Lilly. Claire Cato. Draco Malfoy Wonton Soup. Hell yeah. <laughs> Sarah Shap. Victoria Stilly. Jill May. Maddie Collins. Kate Bear. Christy Turner. Katie Kranz. Christina Guillory. Jim McLaughlin. Chloe Forrestal. Mary Gross. Paige Schoenheit. Jeannie Chase. Georgia. Jessica Bell. Brooke Gillespie. Casey Leap. Lindsay O'Hanlon. Lauren Stevens. Jesse M. Gillian Eubanks. Julie Mason. Gina G. Mason Bayless. Nuhad Bensuda. Avery. Devin Quinn. Jamin Jang. Kayla Hunter. Susie Buckley. Brigida P. Sherry Briggs. Pines. Chris Mulvahill. Katie Spear. Tracy Gallman. Nicole Key. Holly Chastain. Amber Wyatt. Izzy. Paige. Nassim H. Amanda Kep. Peg. Lisa Meyer. And Lisa H. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do this without you. We hope we pronounced your name correctly. We love you so much. We're happy to be back with you guys after all of our fun live shows. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Sinister.